Hi, and welcome to the Ministry Network Podcast. I'm your host, James Baird. Today, we'll talk with Pastor Alistair Begg. Pastor Begg is a world-renowned preacher and the pastor at Parkside Church for over 40 years. Today, he'll share his counsel for persevering in ministry. The Ministry Network Podcast is sponsored by Westminster Theological Seminary. You can learn more about their new online programs by visiting ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree. Now, let's hear from Pastor Begg. Dr. Begg, thank you so much for joining us here on Ministry Network. Well, it's my privilege to do so. We're so excited to speak with you today. To get us started, would you mind sharing with us your journey into Christian ministry? Well, how, how far back would you like me to begin? As far back as you'd like. Yeah, I suppose, strictly speaking, we have to go all the way back into the imponderable realm of eternity. But in terms of my own understanding of things, I can't begin anywhere other than in the goodness of God entrusting me to Christian parents who, you know, brought me up in the faith. So I have every reason to look back there. And, you know, in the words of the hymn writer, unnumbered comforts to my soul, your tender care bestowed before my infant heart conceived from whom the comforts flowed. And that really is true. The further I get on in life and I look back down the corridor of time, you see the overruling hand of God in ways that you don't necessarily in the immediate moment as it unfolds. The short answer really is that I had a pretty good understanding of what I wanted to do with my life, and it, it didn't have anything to do with a formalized Christian ministry. Not that I was opposed to that. I had many good friends of the family who were themselves ministers of the gospel whom I admired. But I thought that I could do well in the realm of law. I thought that I could perhaps, you know, be like Perry Mason and, uh, and do these kind of things. And along the journey in heading in that direction, I ran up against a few challenges that we needn't necessarily go into. But I ended up preparing to do a degree in theology rather than a degree in law. And even when I began to do that with a sense that perhaps God was calling me into some form of ministry, I really wasn't seriously considering the possibility that that would be in pastoral ministry for all kinds of reasons, some good and some probably not so good. But right around the time I was getting ready to graduate from the London Bible College, what is now called the London College of Divinity or School of Divinity, I was involved in youth ministry. And I was, you know, doing events that took place on weekends. You would go on a Friday, you would meet people. And uh, one day, on a Monday, I think, at lunchtime, sitting with a group of faculty and friends, I volunteered the fact that I, that I didn't really enjoy these weekend uh, sorties anymore. And someone said, well, why is that? And I said, well, no, it's not. The, the, the weekends are themselves enjoyable. They're a privilege. What I don't like is leaving on uh, Friday and meeting new people, and then on a Sunday evening, bidding them all farewell and going away with the thought that you'd never see them again. And at that point, one of the faculty, a New Testament guy, John Balchin, said, yeah, I think I can tell you why that is. And I said, okay. He said, I believe that's because God has given you a pastor's heart and not the heart of an evangelist that could come and go which was like both a door opening and a death knell sounding simultaneously. At that point, I was still in my early 20s. 
And were it not for the fact that the late Derek Prime, who was then at Charlotte Chapel in Edinburgh, took me on as something of a project, then I'm not sure what would have happened from that point. But I spent two years under his tutelage. I was then called to a church of my own when I was only, what, um, 20, 25, uh, yeah, 25. And, you know, then I just had to go. And there was no turning back. And so a lot of time has elapsed since then, but those are sort of the key points along the way. In your own pastoral ministry, what are some of the biggest challenges that you've faced and how have you sought to navigate them? Well, you know, I think every, well, let me speak for myself. I can't speak for every pastor, but I can say quite categorically that the person who has given me the most difficulty in pastoral ministry is myself that the challenge of dealing with one's own sin and inadequacies, fears, failures, foibles, all of the rest, is something that, you know, in our Christian life, we, we deal with that. We recognize that we are involved in, as the Westminster says, in a continual and irreconcilable war. And first of all, that big war is really within So in terms of that and the outworking of that, particularly in the early days as a younger man, I think part of the challenges for me had to do with trying to figure out how you move a congregation in the right direction and poorly thinking that it is possible to drive them from behind rather than to lead them from the front. I think in the early days, my ministry was probably far more hortatory than it is now, uh, very much, you know, come on, let's get going here, let's get going. And so there's a challenge that's involved in that. The challenge as well, I think, of assuming when you go to a church that the things that are written in a doctrinal statement are not only understood, but being practiced. And then you discover that, no, that is not necessarily the case. And the metaphor that I use, especially when I was here from Scotland in the 80s at the beginning, You know, I wondered why it was that we weren't really going anywhere. I mean, I was pulling the rope, hoping that the bell would ring, and the bell just didn't ring. And then I suddenly woke up one day and realized that was because the rope was not attached to the bell. And what I needed to do was to go back, as it were, almost to square one, and to make sure that those pieces were all put together in such a way that there was a direct correlation between the work of the gospel going out and embedding itself in the hearts and minds and lives of a congregation. Wow, that's very helpful. And what advice would you give to a pastor who's experiencing conflict on their session or leadership team? Well, you know, it's always difficult to field a question like that in its general form, because, you know, as I said just a moment or two ago, given my own proclivities, part of the problems that we as pastors face may well actually be self-generated. So one of the things that we have to do, I think, in that kind of situation is to examine our own hearts to see where we are. Because it's very easy for a pastor to be insecure and immediately defensive. And of course, when that happens, then there's usually very little progress that's about to be made. But let's imagine for a moment that there is genuine conflict that is not self-engendered, but is coming from the outside. You know, I think it's very important for the pastor to find a way to seek counsel outside of the counsel that may be opposing him. 
And this argues then for friends in pastoral ministry, or not even necessarily in friends in pastoral ministry, but friends who are good friends outside of the framework of the local congregation where we're serving. You know, Derek Prime, whose name I mentioned earlier, he was very strong on not forming personal friendships with the leadership team of the congregation, the elders, which I think has some real downside to it, but there are some real positive to it insofar as it forces you to make sure that the counsel that you're taking can be far more objective because the people are not themselves involved with the day-to-day unfolding of things. So to look for counsel out there and then to be honest about the circumstances to make sure that one doesn't address the entire, let's say, the entire eldership and treat them perhaps in a way that is untoward, when in actual fact, the issue is only with an individual person. And so, you know, in my experience, it's harder but it's best to go to, let's say, the individual who is the catalyst for it and say, you know, I need your help on this. Well, how can I help you? Well, I I sense that this is the circumstance or whatever it might be. And then to deal with it in that way, as opposed to the other way, which sort of adds fuel to the fire, when instead of A going to B, A goes to C, B goes to D, and then there's an exponential impact on it. I also think it's important in being not only honest and kind, but in saying let's there, there has to be a way that we can address this and resolve it. The danger is that because we don't want to have to address it, we never resolve it. And so what happens is it goes down. It's a bit like they say, you know, when you, when you have skin cancer, they say, get it when it's on the surface, because you never know when it will go deep. And so many of these things are surface issues. But if they're not tackled when they present themselves in that way, then they in turn, you know, like a cancer, may go deep and do far greater damage than if they were not addressed in the immediacy. And what advice would you give about persevering in the pastorate for the long haul? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, you know, I have this joke now where I used to go home in the early days on a Sunday night after the evening service and tell Susan, my wife, you know, tomorrow I'm going to go out and try and get a proper job. You know, I I don't think I can do another Sunday like this. And she would say, oh, no, 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 come on, you know, and you'll be fine. She'd try and talk me off the ledge, as it were. And now, after all these years, if I would volunteer anything like that, she she just ignores it entirely because she knows there's no substance to it at all. I suppose when you've been somewhere as long as I have, I mean, I came here in 83, then, you know, you've weathered a few storms, you've seen certain things come and go. And you know, I've, I think role models are important. The people that you have admired, you take a man like, like Simeon, you know, in Cambridge, and you realize how long he's gone. Other people, you know, contemporary folks like, well, John MacArthur has spent an entire lifetime in faithful ministry. And so, you know, if I ran as fast as I could, I could never catch him up. But when I look at those ministries, I say to myself, now, what, what are the key elements? And I think a large part of it is, an absolute commitment and understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture, both its authority and its sufficiency, that the Word of God does the work of God by the Spirit of God in the people of God, and that His Word always accomplishes the purpose to which He's attached it. 
the awareness too that there are ebbs and flows. You know, you, we should expect that, you know, just as there are seasons in the physical realm, I think there are seasons in the soul. There are times when it's like winter, there doesn't, doesn't look like there will be flowers ever again. And I think probably we ought to recognize that there are seasons in a similar way in pastoral ministry. And I think it's helpful to just to be able to identify that. Because most of the time, other people will know, for example, how tired we are before we are prepared to acknowledge how tired we are. And when we're tired, then our judgment is usually off. And then we start to analyze things in a way that probably is not beneficial, or we view how well things are going. That's a bad time to make those kind of assessments and judgments. And so then along with that, doing the basics. You know, just, you know, a verse for me is 2 Timothy 4, 5, at least in the NIV. Uh, As for you, Timothy, keep your head, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. And really, you know, if you boil it down, that's what we're doing like all day and every day. So if someone says, well, what are you going to do today? Say, well, with God's help, I'm going to, you know, keep my head. So I'm not going to allow the evil one to inflate my head and thereby destroy me by undue pride. Or I'm not going to allow him either to reduce my head to like a pin dot and tell me how hopeless and horrible I am because of my identity in Christ and the call of God on me. And and this, again, is where, incidentally, our wives come into play, and perhaps our children as well, who are stabilizing factors. I had an old friend in Ireland who used to say, and he was a Presbyterian elder in a church in Londonderry, he used to say, every minister needs a wife if for no other reason than to keep him humble. And I think that there's more than a measure of truth in that. Let's dig down deeper into some of the themes that you just mentioned. You were talking about the seasonality of the soul and the winter of the soul in particular. I think oftentimes, at least in many churches, there may be something of a stigma around being able to talk about that seasonality and to be able to acknowledge and start a conversation with your session or elders about needing some time to recuperate. How would you encourage, particularly a young pastor who's trying to both take care of his own ministry by bringing this up to his elders, but to build a culture at the church that can support the pastor. How would you start that conversation with your session? Well, you know, ideally it would be that the session started the conversation with the pastor rather than the other way around. You know, one of the ways in which we found it helpful to, if you like, uncover things or unearth things in a way that doesn't come from myself to the men and that is because it comes from a book that I'm reading along with the men. So to read a book on whatever it might be, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, what is an evangelical, the old, old book by Martin Lloyd-Jones, to help us think together about what it means to navigate the line in between ecumenism and schismatic approach, or in looking at a book that is biographical, so that perhaps We mentioned Simeon. You know, perhaps you're reading something on Simeon, and it comes out that he found himself facing the blues or a disappointment or opposition that began to unsettle him. Well, again, if you create a climate where there's a free interchange that is not from the pastor to the session, but it is in this context from a third party, namely a book, to us all, then I've found that very helpful way of having things come to the surface. 
so it doesn't come across as, listen, I've got something I need to tell you about me. Because I'm not really a fan of kind of, you know, the naked preacher that we constantly disrobing ourselves in front of everyone. Oh, what a wretched person I am. It's a bit like Uriah Heep, you know, in David Copperfield. It usually is not particularly nice or helpful. I don't know if that begins to answer what you're asking me. No, it's very helpful because I think one thing it suggests is that the time to build an eldership that can support you in the winter of the soul is not during the winter of the soul. You need to start planting those seeds much, much earlier. Right, yeah. And somehow or another, with God's help, creating the kind of open climate that allows for us to be honest with one another. Having said all these things, you know, we've both heard these dreadful horror stories about, you know, the pastor who has decided to, you know, bear his soul to his session only for the session to send him off down the road, you know. Or the pastor who is so burned out that he pleads for a sabbatical, and they then give him a sabbatical for the rest of his life, you know. I mean, there's dreadful situations like that. Mercifully, I haven't had to endure that, but I'm sensitive to the challenges that some of my brothers face. Well, that leads very nicely into our next question, which is, how would you encourage a pastor who's facing severe discouragement in their ministry? Well, again, you know, personality plays into discouragement or encouragement. You know, some of us are wired in such a way that we see everything half empty rather than half full. And so, you know, grace does not actually reform our personalities, but it ought to help us bring out the best elements of it and diminish the worst elements of it. And so, but where something has happened to cause severe discouragement You know, again, I find that I go to books. This would be a good time to plug for CCF, you know, or which is entirely legitimate. Or, you know, to read Lloyd-Jones on spiritual depression, its causes and cures, because it's a wonderfully helpful piece of work, you know, and he writes both as a physician and as a pastor. I think perhaps to say as well, don't let's be too hard on ourselves. But the other side of that, there is something very appealing about self-pity. You know, the sort of Elijah syndrome. You know, I'm the only person that's left. I'm the only one that really cares. That is seldom, if ever, the case. And I mean, and the antidote for Elijah, of course, was, what was it, muffins and two bottles of water? You know, there was no great divine intervention. It was in some strange capacity. No. So I don't know. I am fortunate, I think, in that, you know, I I know what it is to get the blues, if you like. But I'm not, by nature, a melancholic type of person. And so, you know, the melancholy person says, yeah, that's just because you're horribly superficial. You know, that you're able to skate beyond it. You know, you you don't pay. And, you know, in some ways, there's a measure of truth in that, which perhaps brings me to say that we're always better together than any of us is on our own. And the danger, again, in beginning to bow down under sad or sorry circumstances is that we isolate ourselves and we retreat from the very help that would be offered to us, either in in the Scripture, in the work of the Spirit of God, through God's people. Again, biography is a great help, isn't it? Because when you read some of the stories of the Puritans or, you know, 19th century folks, you read Spurgeon and you realize Spurgeon had these dark, dark periods that almost overwhelmed him. 
and yet he was mightily used. And so, again, reading what he says about that and how he handled that and how, frankly, in his case, he retreated to the south of France. And not everybody's going to be able to do that, but rest and refocus. Join us next time as we continue our conversation with Pastor Alistair Begg. In the meantime, visit ministrynetwork.com forward slash degree to learn more about the new online offerings available at Westminster Theological Seminary.